everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and today we'll hear from two special guests. On the first segment, Dylan Palman, Acton's own managing editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, will be speaking with Samuel Gregg, Acton's director of research. They'll be discussing Sam's article, Wilhelm Rupke, John Maynard Keynes, and the Problem of Inflation. Then, on Acton's cultural commentary segment, Upstream, Bruce Walker will be speaking with writer and musician Robert Dean Lurie about the 50th anniversary of Rolling Stones magazine, in light of the life and legacy of its founder, Jan Wenner. So with that, let's get into our first segment. This is Dylan Pommen. I am a research fellow at the Acton Institute and managing editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Dr. Samuel Gregg, our director of research, who wrote an article in the spring issue of our journal titled Wilhelm Rupke, John Maynard Keynes, and the Problem of Inflation. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Uh, so I want to begin by just covering some of the basics here. Um, you know, who were these people? Who was John Maynard Keynes? Why is he important? Well, John Maynard Keynes, I would suggest, has the reputation of being maybe the most important economist of the 20th century. Now, that doesn't mean that he was right about everything. In fact, I happen to think he was wrong about many things. But in terms of his influence upon, first of all, economics, and secondly, upon the conduct of economic policy in the West, up until the present day, is very hard to underestimate. Uh, he was a Englishman who uh, was born in the last quarter of the 19th century. Uh, he came from a family of academics. Uh, he studied at Cambridge University and very early became very interested in economics. Uh, he first really came to fame, I, I would suggest, when he uh, was a member of the British delegation to the Treaty of Versailles. Mm. And he resigned from the delegation and wrote a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, in which he critiqued the stance of the Allied powers vis-a-vis the conditions that they were imposing upon the defeated um, central powers, especially Imperial Germany. So that's what brought him to fame. Uh, And from then on, he became a very public commentator on economic questions, which up until then had been very much the preserve of a relatively small group of people. And in many respects, he he made economics uh, a more like popular discipline in the sense that he spoke about economic issues, he wrote about economic issues in ways that it was very easy for, let's say, educated lay people to understand. Now, as I said, I think he was wrong about a number of important questions, especially when it came to his understanding of uh, macroeconomics. And he really, really designed, if you like, and created macroeconomics. Mm. But his influence upon economics and economic policymaking is still very profound today. Hmm. You mentioned him uh, as both a theorist and a popularizer. That reminds me a little bit of Paul Krugman. Well, (laughs) there were no Nobel Prizes for economics at the time, but if there had been, I have no doubt that Keynes would have been awarded one. Uh, But he wrote articles ranging from highly theoretical pieces on things like money supply to 
books that were designed for a more educated but more general readership, such as his Economic Consequences of the Peace, but also um, his most famous book, which, of course, is The General Theory. Mm. Uh, but he also wrote uh, proliferately in articles in newspapers, such as The Times, which were then read by lots and lots of people who were, in, who were important in shaping public policy at the time. Mm. So he was a master, really, of being able to get across different audiences. We should also keep in mind that for long periods of his career, he wasn't just uh, working as an academic, he was also serving in government. Mm. So he served in the India office, that was really his first position after he um, graduated from Cambridge, uh, and that the India office was really responsible for, for running the uh, British Empire in India. He also, however, worked in uh, during the Second World War in a number of economic capacities, advising the British government on how to pay for the war. He also negotiated the basically the economic arrangements between Britain and the United States after the Second World War, because Britain was effectively bankrupt and owed the United States a lot of money. Mm. He was also very, very significant in the sense that he was really the one who tried to put together some sort of global, if you like, economic policy architecture. Uh, I'm thinking of things like the Bretton Woods Conference, where he was very influential, mm. and which gave his organizations such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. He died in 1946, uh, which was relatively early. He was only only in his uh, 60s at the time. Hmm. Uh, but his influence upon policy and economic theory is pretty hard to replicate. Hmm. Okay, now, um, to move, move to the next figure, uh, who was Wilhelm Rupke? Well, Wilhelm Rupke was a German economist who was born uh, really at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, he was a son of... Um, a doctor. He came from a family of uh, that had a long lineage of Lutheran pastors, as well as what you might call middle class professional positions. Mm. Um, he fought in the First World War as a uh, soldier. He fought on the Western Front and uh, was effectively awarded what uh, would be the the equivalent of the Congressional Medal of Honor today mm. when serving in the Kaiser's Army on the Western Front. He went back to Germany he was, after the war. He was very, still very young, 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, and he studied economics at, um, in one of the German universities. Uh, and he got his doctorate relatively early. And at the age of, uh, I think it was 24, 25, maybe 26, he became the youngest professor of, in Germany. And in a world like uh, the German academic world, which is highly, what you might say, title conscious, highly focused upon things like position and whether you have doctorates and where they're from, mm. this was considered immensely important. He spent uh, his early career a little bit like Keynes. He started working initially for the German government in terms of managing the repatriations uh, that had been imposed upon Germany after the First World War by the Allied powers, the same repatriations that Keynes had argued against. Mm. But he also uh, very quickly moved into teaching he spent time at a number of different universities, but eventually ended up at the University of Marburg uh, in Germany. Uh, and he spent much of his time writing about uh, business cycle theory, monetary policy, etc., etc. Uh, I suppose he really comes to fame in the early 1930s because, from the one hand, he was very much an anti-communist, very, very against Marxism and what he saw the uh, 
Marxism doing throughout Europe. But he was also notable because he was very much also an anti-Nazi. Mm. And when Hitler was elected in, uh, well, effectively came to office, I suppose is the best way of describing it, uh, in the early 19, 1930s and 1933, he wrote articles uh, protesting against this. Now, what's interesting is that the, the National Socialist government tried to basically suborn him in the sense that they, they he was this man, he was a sort of tall, blonde, blue-eyed, fit-looking man, war hero, mm. brilliant academic, the sort of ideal type of person that the, the Nazis wanted to recruit to their cause. But he resisted strongly and eventually uh, left the country in uh, 1933. He then was recruited to, by Kamel Ataturk to work at the University of Istanbul in Turkey. Mm. He really uh, established the discipline of economics. In 1936, he moved to uh, Switzerland to teach at the Graduate Institute of International Studies, where he remained for the rest of his life. Uh, he wrote books during the Second World War, again, uh, about economic policy, but also making some strong linkages to what you might call cultural ideas, moral philosophy. Uh, he wrote a trilogy of books basically trying to understand what had happened to Europe in the West, and these books had a very strong economic dimension to them. After the Second World War, he was perhaps the intellectual most responsible for the liberalization of the German economy in 1948 mm. against the uh, pretty much the overwhelming consensus of opinion at the time that people like Ludwig Erhard, who implemented the liberalization of the economy in 1948, really had read Robke's books during the Second World War and were convinced that his free market ideas and his version of free market ideas were very important for making sure that Germany would recover quickly after the Second World War, which, of course, it did, and it became the economic powerhouse of Germany. Now, Rocky died in uh, 19, the, late, the mid-1960s, 1966 to be precise. Uh, and in that time between 1948 and 1966, he spent a lot of time writing about questions of international economy, uh, arguing in favour of things like free trade. He was very critical of things like uh, the what became the European Union. He viewed these things as very much a type of threat to freedom and particularly to economic freedom. Mm. Uh, so he was a little bit of a maverick in the sense that uh, he was willing to take up positions that were immensely unpopular. He was also deeply critical of Keynes, uh, not just in terms of Keynes' economic ideas, but he thought Keynes was basically as morally corrupting as someone like Karl Marx when it came to the conduct of, of public policy. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, in, in your article uh, that he called Keynes one of the great intellectual ruiners of history. Uh, why yeah, did he so do that, that? Well, for a number of reasons. One is that he thinks that Keynes essentially corrupted economics as a di discipline, by which I mean he thought that Keynes had opened up the way for what Robke thought was one of the most adverse developments in the development of economics, which was the mathematization of the discipline, which happened very quickly after the Second World War. Mm. So much so now that economics, mainstream economics, for the most part, consists of econometrics, which in many people's opinion, including Robke's, has rendered it less and less useful as a tool of public policy. But he also thought that uh, Keynes's view about things like the money supply and the way that you use money to pump prime the economy wasn't just economically problematic. He also thought it was 
corruptive of the politics and the society because he thought that you basically would end up funding things that you couldn't possibly pay for. You would end up corrupting the money supply. You would divert money from serving its proper purposes. Instead of money being a tool of, of what you might call microeconomics, it became under Keynes a type of macroeconomic tool for managing the economy, all of which uh, Robke thought on technical grounds was not just – it was, was essentially impossible and going to have some very long-term damaging effects – but he also thought it corrupted the body politic in the sense that it undervalued freedom and turned things like the money supply into a way of trying to realise policy goals that were best realised in the long term uh, by liberal markets. Mm. Now, we need, to, we need to kind of wrap this up. And one thing I wanted to highlight um, and something that you've pointed out um, in, in your own work uh, is is could you talk just very briefly about the contrast between Rupka's and Keynes's view of the human person and how that affected their standpoint towards economic policy? Well, Wilhelm Rupke was a Christian, very much a believing Christian. Uh, he was a Lutheran. He often said that he was the type of Christian, the type of Protestant. Uh, that wished the Reformation had never happened, uh, so, which is a funny position when you think about it. But what he actually meant was that he sort of yearned for a, pre, a pre-1517 united Christendom. And he wasn't inclined to argue about specific doctrinal points because that wasn't his competence. But he was very interested in things like, for example, Catholic social teaching. He was very interested in natural law theory. Uh, because he saw these things as providing a platform that people, Protestant Christians like him, could embrace. And among those things was the Christian view of the human person, the person made in the image of God, graced with reason, with free will, with powers of creativity, et cetera, et cetera. And he said this has real implications for how we think about politics, how we think about culture, and how we think about the economy. So he said one of the reasons I'm in favor of a free economy and institutions like rule of law and uh, entrepreneurship and private property is because these things reflect man's nature as a free, creative, reasoning and sinful and sinful. Note that I said sinful <laughs> being. He took right. this all very seriously. Keynes comes from of this from a very different perspective. Keynes is not a Christian. As a young man, in fact, he's deeply hostile to Christianity deeply hostile, uh, and essentially his outlook is one of what you might call um, philosophical hedonism, that you think about the here and now, that you focus very much upon the present, questions of eternal life, uh, even questions of things like um, reason's capacity to know morality. He basically took the view of what you might call uh, um, philosophical hedonist, mixed in with a fair amount of scepticism, uh, mixed in with what you might call a very deeply, if not somewhat secularist, understanding of the world. Now, in later life, Keynes shifted some of his thinking about these questions. He said some positive things about Christianity in the last 10 years of his life. But if you look at what his essential commitments, he's basically what you would call um, a secular liberal. And this led him to very different conclusions about the nature of the human person, yes. which in turn led to different conclusions about the economy. Because if you are the, uh, a sort of what you might call a, a secularist mindset, then um, 
by definition, your focus is going to be upon the short and medium term and long-term questions, let alone long-term questions of how the economy relates to things like people's salvation. They're just not an issue for someone like Keynes. Mm. So they, they bring very different anthropologies yeah. of the human person to bear upon the way they think about economic questions. Now, that doesn't explain all the differences between the two of them. There are obviously different technical questions in, in dispute between the two of them. But there's a very different, if you like, philosophical and anthropological set of principles that Keynes and Hayek brought to the discussion, especially when it came to questions of uh, inflation and monetary policy. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Keynes, uh, for our listeners, uh, very famously once said, you know, in the long run, we're all dead, uh, which is very bleak compared with uh, Rupka, who is known for, or at least known among us, for explicitly affirming that his his view of the human person is grounded in man, is created in the image of God. And as you mentioned, uh, fallen into sin, but also created with reason and free will and creativity and responsibility. Uh, well, we have to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, for, for any listeners uh, who would like to learn more about John Maynard Keynes um, and uh, in particular Sam's contribution to our spring issue, uh, you can subscribe at marketsandmorality.com. Uh, and in fact, that whole issue is a theme issue on the work of John Maynard Keynes and ethics and neoclassical economics. So while it's uh, an academic journal and perhaps a bit slower reading than some are accustomed to, uh, it's very relevant, uh, as Dr. Gregg has pointed out, uh, for understanding our world today uh, and policies that affect all of our lives. Um, and so we, we definitely commend that to all of you. And once again, we thank Dr. Gregg for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. College is about the big questions. No question is bigger than what is our salvation for? For students who want to tie their studies in any major to the big picture of life, Oikonomia scholarships provide the opportunity to explore how God's purposes are woven into family, work, art, education, government, and all of creation. Students could win up to $10,000. An application deadline is on December 31st, 2017. To learn more, go to Acton. A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Upstream and this week we'll be talking with Robert Dean Lurie who uh, is should be familiar to some of our listeners as the author of books on the church, David Boy, and one upcoming book on a very famous band that uh, we cannot, dis cannot divulge just yet. But anyway, how you doing Robert? Good, how are you doing Bruce? I'm doing great. Well, uh, we're going to discuss the 50th anniversary of Rolling Stone magazine today, and uh, that is coincides with a new biography of the creator of Rolling Stone, the editor and publisher, Jan Wenner. So um, uh, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see the documentary on HBO on the 50th anniversary of Rolling Stone, Robert, but uh, I, I know you have read the book as, as I have. So uh, give me some of your, uh, your, your input. Well, there's there's a lot to unpack about Rolling Stone and also Jan Wenner. Um, and I think we'll just start with the 
the importance of Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, the, the interesting thing about this biography you mentioned is that the, Jan Wenner himself, I, I didn't find all that compelling, even though there's a lot of compelling aspects to his story. And what he did was certainly very important. But, um, you know, Jan Wenner, the man, is, is, is a, another topic, and, and uh, we'll get to that, I think. But Rolling Stone itself, the magazine that he founded, um, it's, it's important for everyone, I think, to know about Rolling Stone because it, it, it was a pivotal voice, um, particularly in the 1960s and 1970s. So its importance is that it was the first magazine to uh, successfully articulate the emerging currents of the counterculture and actually ended up mainstreaming a lot of that for better or worse, uh, better and worse, probably. And uh, it ended up first describing this emerging culture and then helping to shape that culture. Well, a big question about Rolling Stone, and, and perhaps this is a pertinent question specifically for Acton listeners, is was that influence ultimately a good thing for our culture or was that a bad thing? And it's, it's mixed, you know, and, and um, there's actually a really interesting part of the book where uh, the author interviewed the former, uh, I guess, managing editor of, of Rolling Stone, Will Dana. And uh, like a lot of people who worked with Jan Wenner, it ended badly, I guess I would say. And, and, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and so, uh, like a lot of people that were interviewed for the book, his, his feelings about the experience are bittersweet. And he said that regarding Jan Wenner personally, he was always trying to figure out if Jan was 51% good or 51% bad. <laughs> and that, that question also applies to Rolling Stone. So as a fan of this music and as a longtime reader of the magazine, I want to say 51% good because I think of all the great writers that Rolling Stone has featured over the years. And I, there's three in particular that I admire, uh, Tom Wolfe, Hunter S. Thompson, and P.J. O'Rourke. Mm -hmm. And and Rolling Stone was was instrumental in bringing those those writers to my attention. Right, and Grail Marcus uh, but, would be would be my fourth, uh, who wrote Grail Marcus. Yeah, who wrote yeah. Mystery Train, one of the, one of the best books on on rock music ever, or not just rock music Absolutely. but blues and uh, and roots music. Yeah, and I mean, there's tons of other rock writers in that pack. Uh, that I guess I don't know if you call them the second tier because in, in my mind they're they're not really they're in some ways just as great so Lester Bangs and mm -hmm. and uh, Nick Toshes and people like that so, Jet Flippo. so that's 50, mm -hmm. sure yeah that that's kind of what I want to I, I want to give that fifty one percent edge to it but uh, on, on the flip side it uh, Rolling Stone actively promoted a a libertine lifestyle that. Um, ended up getting abandoned by many of the cover artists who had the fortune of surviving. Um, and, and it really mainstreamed the drug culture. Um, you had mentioned in a piece you wrote for uh, the Federalist, all the sleazy covers they ran over the years and, and stuff like that. So, uh, oh, sure. and, and also the, the quality of the, of, of the writing, you know, we were talking about the heavy hitters, but it's very uneven, you know, and there's really kind of a, uh, a, a banal sort of uh, 
uh, angle to Rolling Stone as well. And, and uh, it's no coincidence that Jan Wenner was also the, uh, the, 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 person that really made us magazine a, a massive success you know and that's probably actually his biggest financial success was us magazine sure and that is every bit of part of his dna as, as rolling stone is so so that's kind of the whole package great well the the, the takeaway i i took from the biography uh is a little as complicated as yours and and that is mm-hmm. um he, i i admire the entrepreneurship that uh, he displayed in in launching mm. this magazine and keeping it afloat and keeping it going and keeping it relevant through the years. Uh, I also admire the fact that he was a pretty darn good editor. And yeah. uh, if you ever go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, there's a uh, on display is the original manuscript of Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, mm. and it is remarkably different from what you eventually saw in print in Rolling Stone magazine and, and later on in the book, and you see all of Jan Wenner's edits, and they're substantial. So I, I have yeah. I, I got to give him a lot of credit for that. And, and then at some given point in time, um, it, it turned Rolling Stone turned from a uh, a uh, music magazine, a cultural magazine, into basically turning the whole 60s uh, dream into a commodity that could be yeah. packaged and sold back. And I, I don't have a problem with it from a, a free market capitalist standpoint, but I do have a, a problem with the fact that uh, he sort of glorified uh, hedonistic lifestyles. And, and as you said, um, that it, it it went far further into materialism than it did into the ideology of the the 1960s hippie culture yeah and then by the time you get to uh the mid 80s to the early 90s it it basically uh the the main comparison that one could draw is to hugh hefner it was you know skin and sleaze cells and uh it, it got to the point when i wrote about this in my federalist piece I, I had to stop subscribing to the, the publication because I had young daughters at home and I didn't want them to see uh, the pop stars that they were that they enjoyed and thinking that they had to emulate their constant sexualization. Yeah, and there's a huge mixed message that comes from contemporary Rolling Stone because uh, on the one hand, Rolling Stone is pushing very hard uh, for feminism and, and uh you know, for women to be respected in, in some of its uh, journalism. But then at the same time, they're still running these covers that completely objectify women. And it's interesting because um, they had a, a Kim Kardashian cover maybe uh, two years ago. And and then it seemed like that was the last one for a while. And then I noticed just, just maybe last month they had some, some current star, Cardi B, I think, in, in just a, you know, very provocative pose. And I thought, oh well, they need to more move more units. I guess it's coming back. Right, and, and it seems uh, like every that, time every yeah. time that they seem to hit a, a financial speed bump, you'll see a lot more skin. Exactly, exactly. And and that I could I guess that could be a reflection of our culture at large, but uh, it it is rather unfortunate. The biography itself, I honestly I cannot recommend the biography to the Acton audience. Um, I it's it's interesting, uh, and Joe Hagen. The author of the biography is to be commended for just just the number of sources that he got to talk on the record. 
including Bob Dylan. Like who, who gets Bob Dylan on the record about anything? Right. Uh, and, and he, he apparently was able to interview him about Rolling Stone and Jan Wenner. But the, the, the problem with the biography and why I can't recommend it, although he tries to be as tasteful as possible, it's overlong, and I can sum up approximately page 100 to page 400 with one sentence fragment. And they did a lot of cocaine. Yep, I was, I was going and to that, say, I was going to interrupt you and say, <laughs> one extended cocaine binge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that could have been shortened. Um, and I think maybe Mr. Hagen himself, I guess, wanted to move some copy and, and wanted to get every last sorted um, tale in there. But, sorted uh, sensationalistic detail, yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and the other thing is, and, and I think you mentioned this in your in your piece as well, there's some, some really good uh, stuff at the beginning and the ending about the relevance of Rolling Stone and about uh, Mr. Wenner's personal psychology. But then a lot of it just kind of gets dropped, and then it's just sort of this he said, she said, he said, you know, these different sort of people telling tales and, and uh, you know, contradicting or confirming each other's stories and stuff like that. And I, I think it could have been done could have been done a lot better. I certainly enjoyed it personally, but I would not recommend it. Right. I enjoyed it personally as well, but uh, I, I'm with you. I, I don't think I could recommend it to acting audiences simply because it, it is uh, more or less um, a documentation, not a celebration of, of decadence. And I just don't see Wenner being that compelling a character. And I think yeah. that the relevance of Rolling Stone magazine in and of itself has kind of like uh, went over the cliff 20 years ago. And uh-huh. um, if, if you're going to do biographies of magazine editors, there are certainly far more out there that are more compelling and have a lot more significant impact on, on the culture than someone who just says, okay, I'm going to um, do perform some type of payola in wherein I go to the record companies and say, who do you want me to promote and how many ads pages are you going to buy in exchange for me putting your artist on the cover of my magazine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, uh, with Rolling Stone too, it has been wildly inconsistent. So he's got kind of his pack of rock stars that he's tight with, and so they always get a pass. And then there's other people like Led Zeppelin that for whatever reason were not we're not in that circle. And so they just got slayed by every, every release, you know, and bands that later came to be regarded as very important, uh, just could not get a break in Rolling Stone. Um, and it's just, so it's very arbitrary. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for today, Robert. So I, I do enjoy, uh, speaking with you as always. And, uh, thank you for joining us. This is Robert Dean Lurie, uh, who has written books on the church and David Boy has a upcoming, uh, release that, um, I'm, I'm hoping he'll be willing to talk to us about, uh, in a future podcast. So thanks a lot, Robert. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's always a pleasure. Okay, and for this week's Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you next week. And now we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you to everyone who tuned in today. Do you have questions you would like to hear answered by scholars here at Acton? You can always leave us a message at 888-705-4180, and you can hear yourself featured in future podcast segments. Or you can always email us at rfa at acton.org. Thanks again for tuning in today, folks, and we'll see you next time here at Radio Free Acton.